Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you Lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Yeah. 
opinions and representations expressed on the night dreams talk radio network and its website are those of the hosts guests and participants and are not necessarily those of or endorsed by the network its affiliated stations and broadcasts the management other hosts or advertisers of the network the shows found on the night dreams talk radio network can but do not necessarily promote any particular lifestyle belief religion political affiliation or other personal practice these shows are for entertainment purposes only and are not intended to treat, diagnose, and or claim any cure of disease or condition or give any medical or legal advice. Good evening or morning, depending on your time zone. From the Pacific to the Atlantic to you worldwide, get yourself a cup of java and find a comfy, easy chair. And get ready for Gary and his guest on Night Dreams Talk Radio After Dark. And now, here's Gary. And here I am. Boy, this week has just gone so fast. Wow, it's Friday. The next thing we know, it's going to be Christmas. Ah, in the news today, I guess Yellowstone has been burping all week long and actually all through December and it's rumbling. That's kind of eerie. Some more news and, uh, out there on CNN and Fox that, uh, another image appeared uh, that a fighter got of a cube UFO. Kind of strange. What is a cube UFO? I have no idea. Maybe they've been watching Next Generation Star Trek. I don't know. Maybe it's the Borg. Well, tonight, we got two different guests. Our first guest is going to be Mark Delzy-Woodyak. And we're going to be talking about one of my favorite detective shows next to Rockford. And I have to be honest with you. Rockford and Clumbo was a toss-up. But Clumbo was like the Everready battery. It was on for quite a few years, from 1971 to 2003 in fact january 30th was his last airing and i can tell you uh i wonder how many different different uh 
rain jackets he wore during that whole time frame. I have no idea. Well, I hope everybody's going to enjoy the show here tonight because, again, we're going to be talking about Columbo, all about Columbo. And I know a lot of you out there like Tim and Matthew and, and myself are really fans of Columbo. In fact, why don't we bring our guest on right now? Are you there? I'm here. Okay. Well, again, you know, why don't you tell the new listeners a little bit about your background and what got you in to write this great book on Columbo? Well, you know, you, you have to be uh, a, a fan of a series to write an entire book on it. <laughs> and I certainly am. Um, but in truth, you know, last week we, we, we talked about uh, the Twilight Zone and, uh, I was really, uh, that was the book. I was in the early 1980s. I was, I'm a journalist uh, for, for 43 years. I worked at newspapers and in late, in the early 1980s, I was working at newspapers in uh, Southwest Virginia and uh, Upper East Tennessee. And I had just finished my first book and I, I thought I would write a history of the Twilight Zone. But uh, Mark Scott Secree beat me to it with a terrific book called The Twilight Zone Companion. And that was published in 1982. So I immediately set my sights. Being a practical person, I set my sights on uh, another favorite television show, which was Columbo. And uh, I kind of used Mark's book, his Twilight Zone book, as a bit of a stalking horse. I, I kind of thought, I want to do as good a book on Columbo as Mark did on, uh, on the Twilight Zone. And so the following year, I uh, landed a job as a TV critic at the Akron Beacon Journal, and then I was in a perfect place to sort of write a history of a TV series, to track down interviews, and uh, it really kind of all started with a a call from HBO in in 1984. Uh, I think it was in September of 1984. They were doing a movie called The Guardian with Martin Sheen and Louis Gossett Jr., and it was written by a writing team. Uh, named Richard Levinson and William Link. And they were the two guys who had created Columbo. So with every, with every ulterior motive in the world, I asked to interview Richard Levinson. And uh, I figured if the interview went well and we hit it off, at the end of the interview, I could ask him what he thought about my idea of writing a history of the Columbo series. Well, the interview did go well. And as soon as I said that, Richard said, uh, yeah, go to it. I'd, I'd love to have that kind of a book. I'd love to have that kind of a book to show my grandchildren what I did. And uh, a few weeks later, I was in New York on business, and I was attending a press conference, and at the back of the, the ballroom was Leonard Nimoy, who had played uh, the murderer, uh, a surgeon, in the episode A Stitch in Crime, uh, really terrific episode. And so I went over to him and said, uh, Mr. Nimoy, would you mind if I asked you some Columbo questions? And he said, no, not at all. So um, I had my first two interviews within a couple of weeks of each other in 1984. And that's really got things rolling. That's what really got things going on the research. And I spent about five years researching and writing that. That book was published in 1989. Uh, as the Columbo file, and it stayed in print for about 10 years. And then it went out of print after 10 years. It, went, it had a, a pretty big print run for a book of its kind. And it was a dual 
paperback hardcover. And when it went out of print, uh, the publisher didn't even know it was heading it. You see, usually when a book is going out of print, the author is told that, oh, you might want to buy copies or the book is remaindered and you're given a chance to buy a lot of copies. Well, in this case, this book had been a steady seller at Borders and Barnes & Noble for 10 years, and they turned around to order another copy and realized there were no more copies. Oh, wow. They had sold them all, and it became a very rare book all of a sudden. And the prices started to go up online. It started to go up uh, to an obscene level because this basically was a book which was not widely available at a garage sale near you. So they... uh, you know, there was a lot of pressure to revise the book, do a revised edition, but last year I finally said yes. Uh, a small book company, Commonwealth Books, asked me about doing what uh, was called a facsimile reprint of the book. And uh, at first, this will, show, Gary, this will show you how smart I am. I said no. <laughs> I said, Who, how many sales could there possibly be? How many Columbo fans could there still be out there? A lot. Now, if you remember the classic Columbo episode, the murderer always underestimated Columbo. This this sloppy guy in a raincoat and a cigar would show up at the crime scene. Gee, gee, I forgot my pencil. I haven't had coffee all morning. And the, the murderer immediately underestimated the detective. And I was, after becoming like the leading authority on Columbo, I was guilty of the same crime. And uh, this, fortunately, Commonwealth kept at it and kept coming back to me. And finally, I said, okay, look, I'll let you reprint the book um, under one condition. I don't want to hear another word about it. <laughs> I don't want to lift a finger to help you. If you go ahead and do it, I'm very busy. Got a lot of things on my plate. You know, but about a week later, I called them up and said, well, look, you know, <laughs> a new edition needs a new preface. Well, I'll write a new preface to the book. You could put it at the beginning of the book, and that'll be fine. So they, yeah, that's good. That's good. So, you know, a couple of weeks after that, I called them up and said, you know, I, I wrote a remembrance of Peter Falk when he died. Uh, I, I could really expand that, rework that, and we could put that at the end of the book. So people getting a new edition, they'll get a nice, you know, something at the beginning and the end. I said, that would be good, too, you know. But the book was published in 1989, and that was the same year ABC revived Columbo, and they did 24 new mysteries. So a couple weeks later, I called them up and said, I think it needs an appendix in the back that sort of is an (laughs) overview of what happened between 1989 and when Peter died. And they said, that's good. So, you know, I kept sending them stuff, and finally they called me up and said, you have got to stop. (laughs) <laughs> you have got to you have sent us 10,000 new words for this book and you didn't want to do it lift a finger to, to to do anything with this book and but if you send us one more word you're going to throw the page count over and we're going to have to charge a higher price for the book we want to keep it at a so I said okay I'll stop I stop <laughs> I get the message and that was so about a year ago uh the new edition was published and it has just Utterly. I cannot tell you how astonished I am uh, at how many copies have sold. 
There are so many Colombo fans. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Still out there. There's still so much love for this character. Uh, and so I was guilty of underestimating him uh, after all these years. Well, you know, things like me TV and who knows what else on cable. I mean, I can't wait to Saturday night or, or Sunday, Sunday to watch Columbo. I mean, you know, it, it's just a, a, a thing that I like watching. I always want and always wanted to see him not find the murder, you know? Now, I don't know if he ever through all these episodes, through all these years, was there anybody that he scratched his head and and couldn't prove that they were the murder? No, there are 69 cases, and uh, he solved them all over the years. There was a murderer who uh, he let go uh, for... uh, That happened a couple times. But one time he did it happen, it was because the... uh, it was an episode called Forgotten Lady, and Janet Lee played the murderer, and she was an aging actress. And it was a very well-done episode in some ways. It, uh, they, they, it, Columbo always bounced, in, in its original run, bounced between 90 minutes and two hours. And the people who created Columbo always believed that, uh, like the Twilight Zone worked best at a half hour and not an hour, that Columbo worked best at as a 90-minute show. But... Every occasionally, the network wanted two hours, so they would do two-hour episodes. And the two hours, uh, not always, but sometimes would feel very padded, like they added scenes just to get to the two hours. And they were sucking wind after a while on some of those. And Forgotten Lady is one of those episodes that does have padding in it, but it has some very fine performances. But, you know, Janet Leap, it's very craftily done because she keeps forgetting things and at the end, you realize, Colombo realizes, she has a condition, and she's dying, and she's not going to live to uh, to stand trial. So uh, he sort of lets her go at the end, even though he solves the case and he uncovers the fact that she is the murderer. So you know, there every occasionally there is an outlier in where they would try something a little bit different with the Colombo formula, because you know the Colombo formula is basically what is called the open mystery and open mystery. This goes back to the early 1900s. And there were a couple of writers who, uh, sort of pioneered the open mystery. And the open mystery is where, you know, who the killer is right off the beginning. Now, you know, this mysteries never do that. You know, the mysteries are always about who done it, you know, how in this case you knew who did it. And not only did you know who did it, 
You watched him do the crime, him or her commit the murder, right in open. <laughs> so not only do you know who, who did it, but the clues that are going to do the murder in are there. And if you're watching and you're, you know, if you're as smart as Columbo, you're going to spot how he's going to catch him. So Columbo could have dared the audience uh, to figure it out. Uh, like I say, Columbo's not a whodunit. Columbo is a how's he going to catch him? Oh, yeah. And you, so we're watching this dance. Well, that is an extraordinarily difficult form to write. Mysteries are tough, but among mysteries, types of mysteries there are there, there to write, this is uber tough. There's a there's a legendary story about the, you know, uh, you had said that Columbo started in 71. Actually, Columbo started in 68 because uh, Peter had done a standalone movie based on a play that Levinson and Link wrote called Prescription Murder, where Gene Barry was the murderer. That it is a TV movie in 68, but it was a standalone. It was only considered a, a movie. There was never any thought about making the character uh, a regular series. And then um, they thought about making it a series, but Columbo's too rich a uh, formula. It's too rich a brew to be repeated every week. So what they did was they came up with the whole idea of the, the mystery movie. And the mystery movie was that you would see a different detective every, every, every week. So they would be in rotation for four weeks. So one week you've got Columbo, the next week you've got McLeod, the next week you've got McMillan and wife, and there was always a fourth spoke in the wheel they never could fill. Uh, they had Heck Ramsey in there for a while. They had Amy Prentice in there for a while. But Columbo was the most successful part of that by far. But the whole idea of the mystery movie allowed them to do set seven or eight mystery movies uh, a season. And you, you could build up anticipation uh, every three weeks. But the network wanted to be... Columbo was so different than... Most of primetime television, there was very little violence. What violence you saw was highly sanitized. It was very cerebral. Oh, there yeah. wasn't much action. There were no fight scenes or chase scenes. It was basically talk. It was basically people in rooms talking. And the leading man was not this six-foot, granite-jawed <laughs> hunk of a man. He was this floppy guy in a raincoat <laughs> with a cigar. So the, the network wanted to make sure that the first movie in 68 hadn't been a fluke. So they ordered a second pilot, which was called Ransom for a Dead Man, with Lee Grant as the murderer. And that aired in early 1971. And then that proved that, oh, this, is, this does work. So then it went to series in the fall of 71. And the first episode that aired in the fall of 71 was called Murder by the Book. And uh, this was an idea by Levinson and Link. Jack Cassidy, who was one of the great Columbo murderers of all time. Uh, Jack Cassidy played the murderer. The story was written, the script was written by Stephen Bochco, who went on to create Hill Street Blues. And it was directed by a young guy on the lot named Steven Spielberg. Oh, so you so got it. You gotta... Murder by the book sort of gets Columbo off to this really great start. Uh, because he, he really had the A-team. Uh, you had the, what, the, the, the greatest director uh, associated with the series. You had one of the great writers uh, associated. You had an idea by Levinson and Link. 
And then you had the 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 perfect Colombo murder in Jack Cassidy because he had what uh, Bill Link called the the preening arrogance, the guy who was sure he would never be undone by the <laughs> sloppy little detective. <laughs> oh yeah. So well, let's, let's face so, it. So, so, that's how it gets started. Yeah, but but you got to think of this here too, people out there, the listeners that are into Colombo. You know, Colombo again. You know, sloppy. Dirty looking, driving a beater car, you know, smoking a cigar, you know, the way he would talk. He didn't sound like the most educated person in the world. Sloppy as you know what. And then the murderer would think, oh, God, this guy is stupid. And he, the murderers always think I can outsmart this guy. But all the time, Peter Falk or Columbo, I should say, is two steps ahead of him. And he, he always sets up the murder, and the murder doesn't realize he's being set up all the way through it. And that's what makes it so good. You know, I, I, one of the things that kind of attracted me to Columbo as a character, even before I even thought about writing the book, when I was first attracted to the character in the 1970s, when I was watching these original mysteries as a teenager, is... You know, Columbo isn't like Sherlock Holmes. He's not the erudite guy who immediately shows up and sees what everybody else doesn't see. He sees it, but he keeps it to himself. Uh, Holmes makes a show of his erudition, uh, as do most detectives. Poirot is the same way. Columbo, um, he is very British-like as far as his detective character goes, because he's kind of a quirky detective and Columbo is, is very much in the British sense of mystery, but he's a very American character in, a, a, as a character, is that he is, he's very blue-collar, you know, he's, he's obviously the, the son of immigrants, of Italian, he obviously grew up in New York, um, and he gets there not by being the sort of the erudite guy who comes on and says, well, let me tell you idiots how this was done. He comes on the scene and he works like a bulldog and he, he gets hold of the murder's trousers and he will not let go. <laughs> and there's a bulldog quality, uh, all-American quality to Colombo, is that he gets there by working hard and being relentless. And isn't that how most of us get through life? We don't get through like Sherlock Holmes. We don't get to be the, the smartest person in the room. But we can get there, much more of us can relate to the hero who gets there by keeping his head down and applying himself to his job and keeping at it. And that's Columbo. He's always coming back to do what? Just one more thing. There's one thing bothering me about this. One more thing i got to ask you about this. He just never lets go. And I think that's one of the, 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 the great appeals of Columbo is He's this. He's he's like Sherlock Holmes in a ratty raincoat, <laughs> and he's a character we can relate to. We can relate to Columbo. He, we know there's a wife at home that he's crazy about. He's a he likes chili and and, and black coffee and hard boiled eggs and and his cigars and he, he as you say he he drives that that beat up Peugeot and he he's got the dog <laughs> that looks like him. He's just has the Basset Hound, the oh, yeah. dog expression. And, you know, it's, it's, it, that's a very relatable character. It's, it's hard to relate to Sherlock Holmes. It's easy to admire him, but it's sure hard to relate to him because who's that smart? 
But Columbo is very relatable. And then he's always this kind of blue-collar character. And who's he up against? They never put... The murderer was never another blue-collar person. The murderer was always this fabulously wealthy, successful person who comes from, you know, the, the upper classes. So there was also this kind of class thing going on with Columbo. Um, yeah, you're you know, so he right. didn't have it. He didn't have any class antagonism. Columbo kind of liked the murderers. You know, he, 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 his view on things were as, like, uh, it's a shame these wonderfully wealthy people have to do these terrible things, and it's my job to catch them, and I'm going to do my job. And, uh, you know, there's, there's a wonderful moment in a later Columbo where Ruth Gordon, who was, you know, around 80 at the time, she was playing a best-selling mystery writer, and who better to be a murderer? And she's just cute as can be and darling as can be. And she has very good reasons for committing the murder she does. And she and Columbo obviously get to like each other a lot and admire each other a lot. And when Columbo's closing in, and she senses he's getting close, she says something along the lines of, you know, that... You know, maybe she can count on him understanding. And he says, I wouldn't count on that, ma'am. He's a detective. He's got to do his job. Oh, yeah. He's not going to turn the other way. And I think it's a wonderful moment. You know, it's just that that's who he is. That's who Columbo is. So, you know, there, there's these, these lovely moments. And it's always in Peter's performance, because if there was ever a perfect matching of a character and an actor, it's Columbo and Peter Falk. Oh, you know, I don't and, think uh, anybody, seriously, anybody could have filled his shoes uh, to do that. It, it, no other actor could have done it and pulled it off. It was just, I think, a great combination that what made the show unique. Now, we need to go on break. We'll be back in about one minute. We'll continue on talking about Columbo. And I'm going to say a little bit here, what I enjoyed about Columbo. And, uh, well, we'll find out what our guest thinks uh, about my idea. You're listening to Night Dreams Talk Radio. Please check out our website at www.nightdreamstalkradio.com. We're here to make you Hi, Tom Davis here with Metatron Power and Light. We'd like to thank everyone for all the positive emails and responses to our music. Our music can be found on Amazon, Spotify, YouTube, and all digital outlets and is featured on Night Dreams Talk Radio with Gary Anderson. Metatron Power and Light is a band that deals with esoteric subjects, the paranormal, and other topics that engage the spirit and mind. Visit MetatronPowerAndLight.com to learn more. We are facing a time of great change, and the future is unwritten. But when we come together and seek answers, we expand our awareness until we begin to see the unseen. Uncovering secrets allows us to develop the knowledge we will need to shape our future and control our destiny. Tired of Christmas music yet? Well, we're a Christmas music-free zone. Brought 
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. From the compound in beautiful Gig Harbor, Washington, Night Dreams Talk Radio presents your host, Gary Anderson. And that is me. We're back with Mark. You know, Mark, what used to be so interesting, I didn't matter if it was Robert Culp, William Shatner, or Eddie Albert, or Ray Milan, for you know, those people out there who remember Ray Milan, or Vincent Price was on the show. Here's what I used to get, and I still do, is that after he interviews him about the murder, he kind of lets him think, well, I don't think it's you. He's always saying that. I always at the beginning. It's I don't think it's you. And then it's like you mentioned. He's always come one more question, one more question, and you could always see. I don't care if it was William Shatner or, or Robert Culp. You could see the expression of the murder getting frustrated and getting more frustrated because they're trying to be nice to, uh, you know, uh, Columbo. They're trying to, you know. Make Clumbo think they're one of the nicest people in the world. And towards always the end, you can see their frustration. And that's what I oh, yeah. love about it. Yeah, you know, there, there's always kind of this, this wonderful dance. Because, you know, somebody uh, once suggested that Columbo was a cat and mouse. But he's not really. Because, you know, the, it... it, it, it because cause if that's true, then Columbo is the cat, and really the, the, the murderer is the one who looks so much more formidable. The murderer looks like the cat, and the, and the detective looks like the mouse. So you, you, the tables are turned gradually throughout a Columbo mystery, as you realize, this guy, uh-oh, this guy, I better be, be careful. You know, this guy is he's smarter than he looks. This, this guy is, is always thinking. Nothing comes out of Columbo's mouth. I mean, you know, like, you, for instance... There's a great deal of debate about whether, you know, when Columbo talks about all the relatives, you know, I, you know I've got a nephew who's into photography, I've got a brother who plays chess. I got, you never know whether he's actually <laughs> just making that up. Because <laughs> everything that comes out of his mouth is to get the murderer to betray something, to, 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 to give a hint. And, you know, Peter made this point about the, uh, when I interviewed him for the book, you know, he always made a point of saying, you know, it can't be magic. Columbo cannot show up at the crime scene and immediately, through divination, know who the murderer is. There has to be a logical reason he suspects the murderer. And there's got to be a clue. There's a wonderful moment that, you know, there's a, uh, he always loved this clue. There's a, uh, an episode called Mind Over Matter, and Jose Ferrer played the, the murderer. And... uh 
he, mur- he, he murders a man who is a pipe smoker. And he stages it to look like there was a, there was a break-in and he, he had been beaten to death. Um, and he, the, 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 you see him do this in the opening minutes. Or the, 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 after he's finished it, he takes out a cigar and he lights his cigar and he leaves. And it's such a little thing in a little moment. But when Columbo shows up, he finds out that the, the murder victim was a pipe smoker. The room had been cleaned that afternoon. So the only people who had ever been in the room were the murderer and the murder victim. And he finds a match which is burnt all the way down. Well, with a cigarette, you just take one quick puff and it's lit. The victim with a pipe, what he used, Alexa, he was looking for a cigar smoker. And the next thing you know, here comes Jose Ferrer onto the scene and he pulls out a cigar. And Columbo immediately goes, aha, a person of interest. Doesn't mean he thinks he's the murderer, but he knows this is who I'm looking for. And that's little tiny clue of the burnt match. It's what sets Columbo thinking. This, you know, this could be the guy. And, you know, at the very end of the episode, there's this, this was a wonderful moment where they're sitting on the stairs and Jose Ferrer looks at, at, at him and says, you know, what made you think it was me? And Columbo tells him about the match. And Columbo says, I couldn't have given a hoot for any of the evidence. I was looking for a cigar smoker. And there you were. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so it could never be magic. It had to, there had to be an absolute reason as to why Columbo suspected, you know, and, you know, I think one of the reasons, you know, you said you cannot imagine anybody else playing the role of Columbo. In truth, two people had played it before Peter Falk. Um, Levinson and Link had written a short story called May I Come In? And uh, they turned that short story into an episode, a 1960 episode of the Chevy Mystery Theater. And they had the cop named Columbo, played by a veteran uh, character actor named Bert Freed. If I showed you a picture of Bert Fried, you'd go, oh, yeah, I know him. I've seen him in a lot of things. But, you know, he's... Bert Fried didn't even remember playing the part. He was the first person to ever play Lieutenant Columbo. Didn't remember. <laughs> but then they turned prescription, uh, this into a play called Prescription Murder in 1962. And it toured the United States. And Joseph Cotton played the, the, the murderer. And Agnes Moorhead played the murder victim. And Columbo was played by another burly, in this case, Irish-faced character actor named Thomas Mitchell, ah. who had been Uncle Billy in, in, in It's a Wonderful Life and had won an Oscar for Stagecoach and played Scarlett O'Hara's father in Gone with the Wind. So Thomas Mitchell plays, uh, played Columbo on, on stage, and it was very successful. And uh, Mitchell died in 62. Uh, he died, uh, the, 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 the play was on its way to Broadway, and Mitchell uh, died right before it was going. So they shelved it, and then they pulled it out, and they turned it into a TV movie. Now, you may have heard the oft-cited claim that Bing Crosby was one of the people they considered to play Columbo before Peter Falk. That seems awfully strange when all we know is Peter Falk. But if you consider that Thomas Mitchell had been the last actor to play it, an older Irish-faced Hollywood veteran, then the casting of Bing Crosby is not as strange as it seems. 
And they also had thought about Lee J. Cobb playing it because he was sort of a, a, a bulky guy like Bert Freed. But it was Peter Falk who sort of talked them into it. He had gotten a hold of the script of Prescription Murder, and he had said, I would kill to play that cop. So he lobbied for the part, and they had to talk him into it because they weren't thinking of a guy who was that young at the time. They weren't thinking of a guy who could even pass for Italian. You know, He had an Italian name, but they thought it was kind of funny to, for a cop to have a an Italian name and look Irish. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, Falk was the one who talked them into it. And then he proceeded to make the role his own to the point that he's so widely associated with it. As you said, you can't picture anybody else in the raincoat. Well, I don't so, think, you know, I, I don't think Mark, anybody else of being Crosby would have got it. It probably wouldn't have lasted that more. I hate to say it. I could be wrong, but it wouldn't have lasted more than a season or two. I don't think it no, would have. I agree. I agree completely. You know, that's again, this is this is alchemy. This is the, 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 the blending of the perfect actor with the perfect role. Now, I got to um, ask you a question. One of my uh, regular uh, night dreamers on chat wants to know if ever, ever did we see Columbo's wife? And I I'm positive I've seen her at least once or twice in all the episodes. No. Not his real no. wife, but a, <laughs> no. the wife no. that played his wife. There were a lot of... Uh, misdirection plays let's say about that and there was once where you thought you were and but no uh there was she, she was never shown uh on, on on screen so that was the the unseen one there are even people who have uh, speculated that she didn't exist and uh but uh it, 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 to, to to adopt that idea <laughs> that mrs colombo did not exist you'd almost have to also adopt the idea that colombo is is deranged in some way because we, we see him talking on the phone to her. He, there's one episode that troubled waters, which is set on a cruise ship and they're on the cruise because she won it through the, the, the a, a raffle with the Holy name society. <laughs> and, uh, so, and, and other people see her on boat, you know, I says, talk to your wife or whatever. Isn't that your wife over there getting into the boat? So, you know, the, the Mrs. Colombo exists. Uh, you know, but no, we, we don't see her. And, uh, there, there were certain things that, you know, the, in the beginning, uh, when Levinson and Link were in charge, they produced the first season and they put down a lot of rules and later writers and later producers sort of threw the rules out. Like one rule was you never showed Columbo at the office. You never showed him at his office at police headquarters. Well, that actually got thrown out and they did do, uh, scenes at the office. Um, but, you know, certain things were absolutely verboten, and one was that you would ever see Mrs. Colombo. So the answer to that is no. Okay, because, you know, I always thought I saw his wife in one episode, but that answers it. Because, you, again, you've heard him always talking about the missus. You, you've seen him talk to her supposedly on the phone but what you know it's nobody on the phone but i i, I mean you know it, it sets up but you know what i again what i like about the whole run is how he sets up the murder you know he always kind of at the beginning becomes friends with them i swear to god he in in the episodes in some of them where he actually was friends with them and he probably felt bad they're going to be locked up 
Oh, unquestionably. I, there are several episodes where he, 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 he admires and gets to like the, uh, certainly the, the, the episode with Johnny Cash, certainly the episode with Donald Pleasance as the wine merchant. Uh, I, I don't think there's any question he grows to, to like them, and, and they grow to like him. And there is regret at having to, uh, you know, to, to you, but, you know, Colombo's going to do his job. And, you know, I mean, one of the things that reasons, you know, that this was a perfect match between uh, a actor and, and, and role is that Peter really did bring a lot of himself to Colombo. You know, um, they say that, you know, the longer somebody plays a role on television in particular, you know, in a movie, you just live with a role for a little while or a play, and then it's over. But with a series, especially a successful series, you can, you know, live with a role year after year. And, you know, they, people said after a while it was hard to tell where Alan Alda stopped and Hawkeye started. You know? Right. The, the, and then the writer started to write for the, the actor and, and the role. and the, the lines blur, but Peter brought a lot of himself to the character to begin with. Certainly the tenacity. Peter, as an actor is Columbo. Uh, he has that same tenacity. Peter liked to do a lot of scenes, a lot of takes. Um, you know, as Ben Gazzara, who was his good friend and directed a couple of Columbo, said, you know, Peter's warming up on take 70. <laughs> so, uh, you know, <laughs> you know, Peter and, and television hates that. I mean, television is always done on the run, you know, and, and Peter was always about quality, quality of scripts, quality of guest stars, quality of production. And, you know, he believed in rehearsing and he believed in getting it right. And that's Columbo, you know, he's and, and, and like Columbo, he was sloppy <laughs> in, his, in his dress and his demeanor. Um, you know, Peter would have been the first to tell you he was no fashion plate. In fact, the Columbo outfit came right out of Peter's wardrobe. The raincoat, the suit, the whole thing, the shoes. <laughs> that doesn't come out of Universal's wardrobe. That comes out of Peter's wardrobe. Oh, wow. Um, so, I mean, he was he, he was a very, you know, the only, the, the big difference between, you know, Peter and Columbo, uh, uh, besides the fact that, you know, Peter's gift for tenacity was for the craft, and for Columbo it was for detecting, sleuthing. But one of the big differences is that uh, Peter was was a much more, I don't want to say standoffish, because he wasn't. He was very, very personable. But Peter, Peter gave his trust very, very slowly and very, very carefully. Um, it took a long time to get Peter to agree to be interviewed for the book. Um you know, I was collecting interviews. You know, I'd interviewed like Patrick McGowan and Stephen Bochco and Levinson and Link and uh, all these people that played murderers. And, you know, you can't do a book about Columbo without interviewing Columbo. Oh, yeah. And this was a, a period of time when I was in California twice a year on business in January and then in the summer. And every time I would go out, I try to arrange an interview with Peter. And, uh, you know, I was always hitting a wall. And uh, what I found out later was that he was asking everybody about me. He was he was trying to figure out whether he should talk to this guy. And <laughs> step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family 
cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. He's talking to the Levinson and Link. He was talking to all these people. He was gauging me. You know, he was trying to figure out, you know, do I let this guy in or not? And uh, finally, uh, I remember this so clearly. I was staying at the Century Plaza Hotel. And this was before cell phones. So this is probably around 1985. And uh, I was going into my room and the phone was ringing. And this is, again, back in the day when, you know, if you missed the phone, you, you know, they, the light would blink and they would find out you had a message. But I got there and it was Peter's assistant. And she said, Peter will talk to you now. Now. Get in a cab and go to his house in Beverly Hills. He'll be waiting for you in the driveway. He has an office studio. The the garage has been converted into an office studio. He'll be waiting for you to do the interview there. So I jumped in a cab. <laughs> Century City is not that far from Beverly Hills. So I jumped in a cab, went straight to the house. Peter was waiting, you know, and we probably talked for three hours. I remember I had cassette tapes. Uh, you know, 90-minute uh, cassette tapes. I filled up three of them. So it was more than three hours we talked. And uh, when he gave, he gave it his all. When he committed, it was total commitment. And when he decided he was going to talk to me, he said, that's it, you're in. You're part of the inner circle now. So, you know, it, it began not just an association, it kind of began a friendship, too. Because then... You know, Peter made it uh, his his goal to help see that the book would be published, and he really came through it a couple times with uh, just. I, I'll tell you, what, Gary. I'll tell you one quick story about. Yeah, Peter. Go ahead. this is a very nice story about Peter. Not a lot of people know it, and I I, I haven't put it in the book or anything like that. But you know, I I found a publisher for the book after a few attempts, and the publisher was the Mysterious Press obviously a good home for a, uh, a book about a detective character, which was owned by Warner books at the time. And, um, I, they loved the book. They loved the manuscript. Peter loved the book, how the book had come out. So we were hurtling towards publication, but I was going to use about 50 pictures in the book. And when you use 50 pictures and they all come from the same source, the book becomes what's called copyright dependent. It's not fair use. You're not just using a picture from here or a picture from there. You're relying unduly on one person's, one, one entity's copyright material. So I had to go to Universal and clear the use of the pictures. And Universal said, sure, you can use as many pictures as you'd like for $450 a picture. And yeah, I went yeah. back to the Mysterious Press and they said, uh, that's going to kill the book. You can't do the book without pictures. And that's going to kill the production costs on the book. So the book was dead. For a couple of, uh, for about an hour, the book was dead. And it just so happened that that afternoon, Peter called. Um, just out of the blue, he calls me, hey, Mark, how's the book going? Well, Peter, it's not. 
what's wrong? So I tell him. And he says, where are you? I said, Peter, I'm home. You called me. <laughs> and he said, well, just stay there. Don't move. Don't, 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 don't move. And about a half hour later, I got a call from a lawyer at Universal that said, uh, you can have all the pictures you want for a one-time price of $250. Wow. And I said, sold. A uh, check is in the mail. So I send the contract. <laughs> I send the contract right now. Just send it out. And I later found out Peter had gone over to the Black Tower, the uh, the Universal Office Building, had gone into the, the publishing rights division, basically banged on the table and looked at them and said, you give this guy what he wants. And Peter went to bat for it. Peter went to bat for it. So Peter saved the book. There would have, there would have, the Colombo file probably would not have been published in 1989 had it not been for Peter and Peter coming in. Now, ever after, Peter believed he had a built-in expert and creative consultant, unpaid, that he could call <laughs> at any time and ask a question about Columbo. So when Columbo was revived, I might get a call at midnight. You know, <laughs> ring, stagger to the phone, trying to awake yourself. Hello? Mark is Peter. Mark, did we ever use an artist as the killer in the original Columbo? <laughs> I say, Peter, it's midnight. It is. It's only nine o'clock out here. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? Though I'm going to. You know, is this not him? But you know, the last year Robert Culp was alive. Uh, I I got a hold of him because I got his email from somebody, mm -hmm. and I'll tell you what he was the biggest jerk in the world towards me for about a, about a month. I mean, I I mean, I I could I can't even say some of the words he would say to me in an email over the air. But then one day I said something back to him, and all of a sudden we became friends. And, uh, you know, I should write a book from all the stuff he told me. But we, we became good friends the, the last year he, he was alive. I mean, you know, he was trying to save the elephants at, at the zoo uh, in California, one of the zoos. He would call up and we'd be talking about that. He would go up to, you know, the uh, city council, all that stuff. One hell of a nice guy. But at the start, he was the biggest jerk I ever ran to. In my whole life. You know, one of the, the regrets I have is I didn't get to, to Robert Culp uh, for the book. Uh, you know, and he was, you know, after Jack Cassidy, probably the, you know, the ultimate Columbo murderer. And I tried. I mean, you know, sometimes you just cannot get past somebody's publicists and all the walls that are around them. And I couldn't, you know, but I did meet him afterwards. After the book had been published, we, we met a couple times and. Uh, once we met at an NBC function, and uh, and, and he he said, "Well, why didn't you interview me for the book?" I said, well, "I tried. You know, I I was I tr kept trying to get to you. Your your people wouldn't let me near you. Um, you know, and and you know, some people just I think they just liked it. They, 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 and and sometimes it just takes that one moment, like you say, you said the right thing at the right time, and it everything blossomed. Um, so you know, it's it's. It's the luck of the draw a lot of times. And, you know, I was, I was luckier than more often than not with the Columbo book. You know, did I get everything I wanted? No, you never do. 
but I certainly got 90% of what I was aiming for with that book. And, uh, you know, and I'm very fond of it. I'm very fond of the, you know, you, Peter could be extraordinarily exasperating. He could wear you out. <laughs> uh, but he was always likable. You know, that is something else he shared with the, with the character. He was incredibly likable. It was, it was, it was hard to, uh, not to be utterly charmed and to laugh in Peter's presence. You know, we, we, we would get together whenever time would allow, and there was always a lot of fun and laughter involved. Uh, you know, he's, he, he, he had this... I remember Stephen Bochco once said about him um, to an interviewer. Uh, he said, if, I know, if, if, I, if a doctor had told me I only had a couple weeks to live, I would go find Peter Falk because he would cheer me up. And I thought, that what a lovely thing to say about somebody. What a wonderful thing that is to say about someone. So, you know, for, so Peter, for exasperating as he could be, and for as much as he could, he could wear you out, it, it, it's hard, you cannot remember him without a smile. I can't. You know, even when I tell the stories about him waking me up in the middle of the night, <laughs> I, I'm laughing. See, you can hear me laugh. It, it, I, I cannot, without an affectionate smile. I I, I I I have to go to that with Peter because he really was that that, that lovely. When did uh, Mark? When did Peter uh, pass, and what did he pass from? Peter was suffering from Alzheimer's uh, at the end. It was a it was a very sad uh, departure. He had done sixty nine Columbos, and he had hoped to do a seventieth uh, to round it off and do one last one and go out on one round figure. But um, around 2008, uh, he started to show. So I actually, he and I were on a radio show together. Um, and I think it was the last interview he did. And he was so sharp. He was remembering, uh, his voice sounded a little frail, but he sounded, he was remembering things from childhood. And he, he shared things I'd never heard him say before. And it was just a lot of fun. And then he had a couple of um, procedures. He had a, uh, uh, one was a dental procedure and he had had anesthetic and there are some cases apparently where uh, an, an anesthetic especially in elderly people can trigger a quick onset of Alzheimer's and um, you know at, at least that's a, a theory for as little as we know about uh, these things but very quickly after Peter started to go down very very fast so this was about 2008, and it wasn't long before he didn't even remember playing Colombo. Um, so he, he, you know, he and he died in um, on June 23rd, 2011. Um, you know, and it was complication of Alzheimer's that that, that that took him. But the shame is that he didn't get to do the 70th Colombo. I think you know that would have been it would have been nice to have done that one more thing. How old you know? would he have been if he would have been able to do the 70th? Well, he was uh, tracking in uh, in his late 70s at the time. But Columbo is a somewhat ageless character. Um, you know, cause he played Columbo in those, you know, and, and like most Columbo fans, I'm probably going to tell you that the ABC mysteries were not as good as the original 45 NBC mysteries. And the reason is they weren't. <laughs> they just weren't. And there were a lot of reasons for that. One of the reasons was... Um, 
the fact that they were all two hours. They started with a running count of two hours, and again, Columbo sometimes had to be 90 minutes uh, for a really tight mystery. So uh, a lot of those newer episodes seem padded. You didn't quite have the richness of guest stars. The great thing about those original Columbos today is you take an episode like uh, the murder, the one where Roddy McDowell is the murderer. Oh, yeah. Short Fuse. Well, first off, you have Roddy McDowell. But every time you turn around in that episode, you are bumping into some great character actor or, 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 or leading lady or whatever. Anne Francis is in that. Uh, Ida Lupino, James Gregory, William Window. <laughs> it's just wow, you know, what a, what a stock company this is. And every Columbo scene in uh, the originals, you could go two or three actors deep in the cast. And, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd have, like you, you mentioned Vincent Price. Vincent Price is in uh, an episode called Lovely But Lethal, but he is neither the murderer nor the murder victim. Vera Miles is the murderer and Martin Sheen is the murder victim. And Vincent Price is in the cast. So, I, yeah. you know, you, you could have this wonderfully rich, which you kind of, TV was just that much more expensive to do once you get into the 90s. Oh, it is. So, hey, guess you know, what, Mark? So, so Mark, that there was that. Our time is up. Oh! <laughs> the hour just flew by. Yeah. And it, My goodness. It, it just goes by so fast. And I'm really sorry because I really like Columbo. Now, we're going to get together a, a, again in the future, aren't we? And we're going to be talking about a, another show again. And we're going to have somebody maybe with us. Oh, uh, yes. Yes, I believe uh, I, 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 we're trying to work on, on doing a show uh, with Anne Serling about the Twilight Zone in the near future. So I think that'll be a lot of fun. You'll love Anne. She's she's just wonderful. And uh, her book about her father is incredible. Just just a wonderful, wonderful book. I know. For and anybody interested in Rod Serling or the real Rod Serling, I strongly recommend her book. That's what I want to find out. Now, how can they find your book, Columbo, and how can they find information oh. about you? Easiest way to get the book is Amazon, but make sure you go to the uh, 30th anniversary edition uh, place on Amazon, because otherwise it may take you to one of the higher-priced uh, original editions, which do tend to get still, still a little bit pricey. Uh, I so noticed sure that. you're going for the 30th anniversary edition, and that's on Amazon. And, uh, you know, and for me, it's always com. The, uh, the website, uh, is always a good place to stay up with me and I'm on Facebook. So I'm easily found. Okay. My friend. Well, till next time. And when we talk about twilight zone again, I, I really enjoy talking about, you know, uh, Columbo. We didn't really talk about, uh, much about Eddie Albert. Uh, you know, I, every time I think of Eddie Albert, I have to be honest with you. I think of green acres. <laughs> you know, Eddie Albert had an interesting career. Yeah, and Green Acres does tend to overshadow the early Hollywood stuff. He had a singing career. He was in musicals. He cut albums. And people don't know that about Eddie Albert. He had he had, he had quite a career. And uh, but but everybody kind of thinks of him as Oliver on, on Green Acres. I wonder why. Of course, I wouldn't mind yeah. who his co-host was. Well, Mark, like always, I want to thank you for being on the show tonight. Oh, my pleasure. You, you asked me to talk about Colombo. Obviously, you know, you're, you're, it's going to be hard to shut me up. Okay, so, my friend. One of my favorite topics. You take care. Okay. And take we'll, care, Gary. Okay. You have a great Christmas. Hey, hey you too. Happy holidays. For, warmest wishes for the holidays and well beyond, my friend. Okay. You take care. 
that. Yeah, Peter uh, Falk playing Columbo. I can tell you what I don't like. What I don't like is that me TV. I'm sitting here watching every week. They 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 do Columbo on Sundays, and one week he's young. The next week he's like 25 years older, and you know it, it's no big deal because he's playing a part. But I I tell you what, he made a lot of friends. With these murders, I can say that. Well, when we come back, we're going to be talking about ancient history. We're going to talk about, has this planet been rebooted? Has mankind been walking this earth way more longer than we ever thought? We'll be back in about five minutes. You're listening to Night Dreams Talk Radio, and we will be back after the break. So, everybody, we'll be right back.
Advertise your business on Night Dreams Talk Radio and you will be heard worldwide. Why not contact us at nightdreamstalkradio at gmail.com? Coming to you from some far point station, like a cosmic tumbleweed, both north and south of the Pleiades, here's your host, Gary Anderson. And that is me. Well, now we're going to be talking about ancient history and all that stuff with our great guests. Our guest now is Michael. Hey, Michael, how are you doing? I'm I'm doing okay. Well, that's better than not. What part of the country are you in? I'm in Los Angeles. How bad is this virus hitting you? Because I know over here in Washington State, it's hitting us really bad. Well, I think Los Angeles and, and Los Angeles County are one of the big hot spots, you know. But I've been kind of just keeping to myself, kind of on lockdown, so kind of grounded. Well, that's it's better being safe than sorry. That's how I feel. I mean, I I go out of the house as little as I can. And I try to do everything like once or twice a week. I just don't want to be around people. And, you know, I get kind of stressed out because my daughter works in a hospital and she's in and out of patient rooms all day that have the virus. And I, 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 it makes me nervous, not just for her, but for the rest of the family that, you know, it's scary. And I'll tell you one thing. I, I, I don't know. I'm hoping the vaccine will work. Well, hey, Michael, why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? A little bit about your background. Oh, okay. Mostly people know me from my books like Forbidden Archaeology and Human Devolution and some others. So I got into that because partially because of the way I was raised. My my father was uh, an intelligence officer in the Air Force, and our family moved around the world to different countries, different places in the United States. And that kind of opened me up to a lot of different cultures and worldviews and things like that. So uh, I became attracted to the worldview of the yoga systems of ancient India. And that got me looking into the scriptures, the Vedic scriptures, the the Vedic histories. And they told of human beings living on this planet 
millions of years ago, and it was something completely different than I'd ever learned from my teachers in high school or in the university. So I started looking into that, into the history of archaeology. Most archaeologists today think humans like us first came into existence less than 300,000 years ago. But when I, I decided I'm, I'm going to look beyond the textbooks. And maybe that's also because of the way I was raised. I was raised among people in the intelligence services and stuff like that. And, you know, I kind of learned early on that there are things going on in the world that most people simply aren't aware of. So I decided, okay, let me look beyond the textbooks because they've only got the evidence that supports the standard theories. Let me look into the original reports by archaeologists and other scientists who are digging into the earth. And when I did that, I was really genuinely surprised to find hundreds of reports by archaeologists of discoveries of human bones, human artifacts, human footprints going back many millions of years. So kind of wondered, well, why is, why is it that these reports are there in the original scientific publications, but they're not in today's textbooks? And I, so I put all those reports together in, in this book, Forbidden Archaeology, which is the one I'm probably best known for. Well, why do you think that it, it, it's not? You know, here, here's my thing, and, and you can correct me. I I myself, okay, from the research of doing what I've done for 40, going on 45 years, doing paranormal talk radio, I come to a conclusion, and I could be a totally, totally wrong, but I really think that this planet has been rebooted once or twice, and that maybe accounts for some of these artifacts going back. I, I could be wrong, but, you know, when you go to school, they teach you but I don't think they're teaching the people, the young kids and college students, the truth. Yeah, well, that's where this all leads to. You know, uh, in, in, in one sense, you could say, well, what difference does it make if human beings have been around a lot longer than we now think possible? Well, one thing it means is that our current theories of human origins, you know, the Darwinian evolutionary theory basically are are wrong. And there's more to a human being. We're not just accidental creatures, uh, made machines made of molecules. Beyond that, there's the subtle mind element which takes you into the paranormal. There's a conscious self that's different than the body, different than the brain. I mean, that takes you into the whole paranormal research area where there's been a tremendous amount of what I call knowledge filtration going on in the world of science. Interesting. What type of things have you found predating what science is saying that man existed especially in tools and stuff like that that's the part i get frustrated because you know you look at the pyramids for example or you look at the finks or you look at what the mayas created with the type tools they had i don't see any way any of that could have been done so i think technology at one point was so much farther advanced and somehow it went back but i, I heard uh, from my producer saying that, you know, there's 
been found axes, for example, in rocks and stuff like that. How could it have got there? Yeah, there are things like that. Well, like you could look at the California gold mine discoveries that were made in the 19th century. You know, gold was discovered in California. People came from all over to get it. They were digging tunnels into the sides of mountains, and they were finding human bones, human artifacts, obsidian spear points, stone mortars and pestles, all, all kinds of evidence like that. Now, yeah, they didn't find uh, you know, a cell phone or anything like of that, but that's that, that, that our kind of technology really doesn't last a long time. But anyways, these human bones and human artifacts were found in layers of rock 50 million years old, which is really quite astonishing. You know, so that, that's one thing you find. But, yeah, you know, there are different kinds of evidence. One type of evidence is what you can find in the earth, the layers of rock in the earth. Another type of evidence is the records left by these ancient wisdom traditions that have been passed down from generation to generation for who knows how long. And in those accounts, like the ancient Sanskrit writings of India, they tell about civilizations that existed on earth millions of years ago that had spaceships. They were called vimanas in the Sanskrit language. They had weapons resembling modern nuclear weapons. They had the ability to make sophisticated robots that would look just like a, a human being or an animal or a bird, and they operate those. So it's Really kind of interesting. I think you're right. Civilizations have risen and fallen on this planet many times. Use, use the word reboot, which I like. Well, that's what I come to conclusion, because, you know, if you look at certain things, why would the Mayas, the Incas, why would they, they uh, take gold and, and, and worship it, basically, and hoard it? Something had to get them focused on why gold, not pewter, why not brass, why why was gold so precious to them? So some, well, something had to instill into their their brains that this this gold is something special. Well it is in the sense that all the practically all the other metals will oxidize. Gold doesn't oxidized generally it lasts it's kind of like a, a permanent sort of element i mean there was a case in the 1890s in uh, illinois where a woman was putting a piece of coal into a coal burning stove and it broke in half you know this big piece of coal and inside was embedded a gold chain you know that like a necklace so the coal we found out from geologists is about 300 million years old. So I think you're right. There is this incredible quality of gold, its rarity and its uh, how it doesn't oxidize like most metals do. And, you know, it, it's, it, it is a fascinating topic. Well, it just tells me, again, a man has walked this earth 
so much longer than we have ever imagined. And they have created things in the past that probably are more advanced than our technology even is today. And and somehow it got lost and everything started over again. You talk about the gold chain. I've heard other objects have been found, tools embedded into rock. Uh, There's a lot of things that just as if you go by the textbook doesn't make sense and then you get these other group of scientists are claiming that man have only been walking the earth for six thousand years i mean come on there's so many everything out there is uh, on this whole subject is kind of crazy but it's been too many things found not just that like piece of coal where they found a chain in it but there's so many other articles that have been found and they just found a skull here recently. Again, it, it's it's puzzling to you know scientists. Yes, uh, you know there are different kind of categories of evidence. Yeah, you know, we could talk about because sometimes because I deal with professional scientists and I speak at scientific conferences in archaeology, I kind of focus on the evidence that's reported in the scientific literature, which tends to involve things like stone tools and things like that. But if you look a little outside you know, what's in the mainstream scientific literature, there's some pretty amazing things that people claim to have found. Uh, one case that's come to my attention recently, it's, I think it's, uh, there's a place in Siberia called T- 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 Tisulka, uh, where in the 1960s, some miners and researchers found this sarcophagus, this stone uh, sarcophagus, and they pulled it out of a coal mine from hundreds of feet underneath the ground. And when they opened it, you know, they said they, it was filled with this bluish pinkish kind of liquid and in the liquid was preserved the body of uh, a young woman who appeared to have been some kind of princess or something it was totally human in form and they said it came from uh, layers of rock in a coal mine that were about 800 million years old so You've got stuff like that. Um, But even in the mainstream type of evidence, you know, bones, footprints, stone tools and weapons and things like that, they find evidence that humans like us have been present for millions and millions and millions of years. And that is the part where, you know, I hate to say it, what you, they teach you in school, they they teach you how man originated. In a way, it even doesn't it kind of contradict the Bible in a way. Uh, yes, <clears throat> not just the Bible because you know it contradicts the Bible, the Koran, the Vedas, contradicts everything, really. So it even contradicts common sense, but. You know, that's the way things are. 
How old do you think this planet is? Uh, well, I think our planet is in this cycle of creation, because I believe, as you said, that we've been reset many, many times. <clears throat> I think ultimately there are many universes. Oh, excuse me. <clears throat> ultimately, <clears throat> there are many universes and they've been created and destroyed again and again and again and again. So I think our planet has appeared and disappeared many, many, many times. You can't even put a, an age to it. But in the recent cycle, I think it's been around a few billion years. But you know, sometimes some people, they think, well... Everything happens within a very short time frame, you know, 10,000 years or so. Many people who uh, accept uh, biblical creationism, as they call it. And I think that's fine if, if that's what they say. What I say is whether the earth has been around for a long time or a short time, humans have been around since the beginning and we didn't evolve from apes. <clears throat> Well, yeah, I, I, I don't think we have. And what, again, I, and I talk about this a lot on the show. You look at the, the great pyramids. You look at the finks and all this. The finks now. It, it, what the scientists have been saying here for the last couple of years, you know, they first thought the wear marks in the back of the finks was caused by sand. Now they revised the whole theory behind it. It was underwater. So, and already, we already know the Finks is predates the pyramids. So, whatever technology they had to, you know, come up with the Finks blows out the whole theory about how man originated, doesn't it? Uh, yes, it does, especially the origin of civilization, basically, with cities and monuments and things like that. I, I know Robert Schock, who was the geologist who did the initial work on the Sphinx that you're talking about, showing that the marks coming down you know, on the uh, Sphinx enclosure are due to water erosion. Uh, and when's the last time that there was a huge amount of rainfall in Egypt? According to scientists, it was about 15,000, 20,000 years ago, which would mean the Sphinx has to date back at least that far. So uh, now they think you know, the Sphinx is about 6,000 6, or 7,000 years old, maybe. I mean, the mainstream. No, just think about scientists. that. Uh, you th if you think about... Michael, our technology today, we certainly can't build anything like the Finks with any of the, 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 the marvels we have. Now, we already know the head on the Finks is not the original head. At one point, something happened to it. They, another whatever civilization changed it. But the technology they had to make it 6,000 years ago, 12,000 years ago, whenever it was created... We simply, as humans, didn't have that technology. I mean, think about this, too. Even the pyramids. 
with all the technology we have, we can't duplicate the the, uh, the pyramids. We can't make a pyramid uh, like the original ones, like the great, uh, you know, pyramid. We can't do it. We don't have the technology. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And there are other objects in Egypt that are pretty amazing. They've got uh, stone bowls you know, or, or uh, uh, vases, you know, stone vases, very long, slender vases. And they're, they're carved out of stone, and the stone is very thin you know, on these vases. And there's just nothing, no technology we have today that can make you know, a vase out of a solid piece of rock with kind of like practically paper-thin edges on it. You know, the walls of it are just very, very thin and delicate. And then they also have, you know, like some of the sarcophagus, like the sarcophagi that are found there, which they think were bodies were to, or mummies were to be placed in them. They're made of stone. They're carved. And they've got... Uh, 90, you know, like the, the edges of them, like say if you have a box and, you know, you've got the bottom and you've got the walls, the sides coming up and they're done perfectly, you know, perfect angles, you know, 90 degree angles, you know, it's just ama- amazing kind of work. No, you, and again, what type of tools did they have at that time frame that at least what we think they had it, 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 what I've heard what some scientists claim that the tools they had it was no way they could have carved that they could have not done it so whatever they had they had something more sophisticated than our scientists believe i don't even think we have really the technology even going to the pyramid uh i i talked to a company back oh gee a year or two ago called flow industries they're the ones that perfected cutting stones with high pressure uh, cutting concrete very accurately but they said they couldn't even with their technology that they perfected they couldn't do what was done like with the pyramids so, you know, I can't believe they had brass tools or whatever type of tools they had or, st- uh, or stone tools to be able to do all this stuff. And even, uh, yeah, another amazing place is the Ellora Cave Temples in India. It's like you've got this mountain made of solid rock, you know, and they've carved huge vast temples into the solid rock okay now michael we need to take like a a 60 second break for the stations and we'll be back and i want you to explain what you're talking about now how could they have done it because i've seen pictures of that and i'm still when i look at it i'm still in shock we'll be back uh talking more about this subject on night dream stock radio right after this Do you have a paranormal story you want to share on Night Dreams Talk Radio? 
you could be a guest. Email us at nightdreamstalkradio at gmail.com. Across the world, this is probably the best radio station in the world. From the compound in beautiful Gig Harbor, Washington, Night Dreams Talk Radio presents your host, Gary Anderson. And we are back. Now, Michael, you're talking about these beautiful uh, buildings that were built into the side of the mountain. Uh, I've seen the pillars. I've seen the what they've done and accomplished. How could they have done it? I I really don't know, but it, it's just, I mean, I've been there personally. There's this one uh, temple, it's called the Kailash Temple. It's got elaborate columns, vast rooms in it, and it's built you know up about 300 feet high. And it's got all kinds of intricate carvings and passageways. It, it's just like absolutely amazing and and how do they they say they built it well they had you know little hammers and you know simple chisels and you know they went to the top of the mountain and just started carving and carved it all the way down so you've got this huge elaborate intricately carved temple with hundreds of columns and windows and passageways and rooms just totally amazing well if they did that by hand tools even if they had thousands of slaves doing it you know just thinking about that how long it would take to do it well you know if you look into the sanskrit writings of india they talk about architecture of higher beings you know, bringing architectural knowledge from higher realms to, uh, and they had some some sort of mystic power that they could do that, you know, by mantras and things like that. So, I mean, there, you, you, if you look into things, I think even the tradition in Egypt was after some time was that they said those things were made by King Solomon by he used gene in other words subtle mystical creatures to manifest that art architecture in Egypt takes you into the paranormal it does now can i ask you a question you don't have to answer it if you don't want to michael do you think maybe some of this stuff has been created by et's aliens that came down to this planet and kind of maybe helped reboot the planet at one point yes i i do i think our i think it's something like cloud computing you know like the, the idea of the cloud is, say you have on your computer or your phone, you have all your files and pictures and songs and music and f everything, emails. 
But if your device gets destroyed, then all the files are up there in the cloud, so to speak. So when you get a, a new device, everything can kind of be downloaded. So I think our Earth is like that. We go through cycles of uh, where there are devastations that wipe out everything. And then our Earth gets repopulated. It gets rebooted from higher beings. You can call them extraterrestrials by higher beings that they have all the all the resources necessary to reboot our system down here so i you know i think it's something like that it does happen on a regular basis and in one sense i'd say we're all extraterrestrials i think as conscious intelligent personal individual beings none of us are from this planet we're from this is the world of matter we're from the world of consciousness or spirit, ultimately. So I'd say we're all extraterrestrials. Well, I kind of agree with that. I really don't. Maybe, you know, like they have found, you know, meteorites, you know, that have come from Mars. Maybe we're the Martians. I don't know. But if you look at all this stuff, it, it just, you know, everything I learned when I went to grade school, high school and college, everything I've learned I sit back and I figured it's all BS, pardon my language, because what we have learned in the last 10, 20 years or even the past year is throwing everything we have ever learnt out. It, 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 you know, it just doesn't make sense to me that how we have created what we are at now. Has there ever been any signs of maybe of, this planet having a nuclear war at one time have you ever found any evidence of that uh not personally if we're, we're talking about i mean I've, I've heard that in different parts of the world there are uh expanses of fused glass on the ground which is one of the things that happens when you set off an atomic weapon like in Alamogordo, New Mexico, where the first uh, atomic bomb that it, the United States made during World War II, they tested it in 1945 at, uh, in New Mexico in the desert. And at the place where it was set off, all the sand was fused into glass. So they say you can find places like that in different parts of the world, India, Africa, other places. Uh, but, you know, the ancient Sanskrit writings talk of a, a weapon called the Brahmastra that was like, you know, the way it's described is if you had thousands of suns all gathered in one place, it's that amount of energy that was being released by this weapon so yeah there could have been warfare like that a long time ago yeah that and then that would have been another reboot of the earth as we know it what i find interesting antarctica you know as it's melting they're starting to find strange things you know uh, me uh and my producer Back here almost a year ago, uh, we were on 
Google Maps, or not Maps, but Google. Uh, Google Earth. Yeah, Google Earth. And we saw something that looked like a uh, footsteps of a castle in Antarctica. I mean, it was just like it would be the remains of a castle. And it was up there for about a day or two. And then me and James went and checked on it. It no longer existed on it. It was removed. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Now Antarctica is covered by ice, thick layers of ice. But at one point, many, many millions, 40 or 50 million years ago, it was ice-free. And it's interesting. There are maps that were discovered in the Middle Ages, like one of them is called the Pyrrhus Race uh, Map. And it shows, you know, this is from about, you know, 1500 or 1400 AD, you know, around that period of time, you know, a few hundred years ago. They had a map that showed Antarctica, not the way it looks today, but the way it looked when there was no ice on it. You know, it showed the land that exists under the ice that hasn't been visible for about 40 or 50 million years. So somebody must have been around 40 or 50 million years ago making maps of Antarctica as it looks without the ice. You know, so that's pretty amazing. Well, you know, as Antarctica is thawing out, and it's doing it way faster than scientists ever thought. I mean, now land mass is starting to pop out, which have been covered in ice. Give it another 10, 15 years, we might be in a big shock. Again, that might be enough to throw everything again into confusion, how man originated. Yeah, and I guess where you and I live, we're going to be underwater. <laughs> yeah, you know. <laughs> With all that ice melts. Dr. Richard uh, Allen Miller has been on my show several times, and he, I'll tell you what, he scares me. Now, he was a science uh, director uh, for uh, the White House under Nixon. Oh. And this guy has a bunch of credentials behind him. I mean, he with the, the the Pentagon training Navy SEALs down the everything. And the last time he was on my show, two things that really stuck to me. He, he said Yellowstone, for example, is so close to erupting and that magma is flowing as far underground as Ohio. And that is scary, but he said, don't worry about it, because if Mount St. Uh, I mean, if Yellowstone goes where you or I not, all of far as British Columbia will be underwater as far as I-5, that part towards the ocean will be gone. Hmm. So, I mean, it, it's scary. That tells you that things can change really fast. I really believe that. So, I mean, I think, you know, if Antarctica, in if we are still here in another 15, 20 years from now, I, I, that or the government, if, if we just start seeing things or the scientists and the government starts discovering things in Antarctica, I don't know if they would even divulge it to the general public. I don't know how you feel about that. 
I, I have seen that there is a process of knowledge filtration, I call it, operating in many different fields. And governments do it, academics do it. You know, there, there's a lot of stuff going on that most people are just never going to find out about. I don't know. So what you're saying that human life has existed way farther than we have ever thought. I mean, going back to that piece of coal where, you know, it broke open, there was a gold chain in it. I mean, I've read about reports where rocks, for example, they boulders were, you know, broke up and there were tools in it. And the only way a, a, a tool could get into a, a giant rock is that they had to be, well, either a volcano going off that formed these rocks or something at one point has happened. Yeah. Uh, I think it's like, say we build a space station and we shoot it up, up into the earth orbit you know we don't just wait for the chemicals in the space station to somehow or other combine together and evolve somehow into an astronaut no we send the spaceship up because we've already got astronauts and as soon as the spaceship space station goes into orbit we put astronauts in there to do their experiments or whatever they're going to do. I think our Earth is like that. It's like spaceship Earth, they, they used to call it sometimes. It has a purpose. And the purpose is for people to become self-realized. And that means right from the beginning, the human form of life had to be there because that's the form of life which has the intelligence to become self-realized, understand we're, we're, we're something completely different than these material bodies that we now inhabit, we're, that our consciousness has the potential to exist on a, a level where there's no birth, no death. That's possible. So... Uh, that's the, the real significance of the evidence for a very ancient presence, human presence on Earth. Uh, it means we exist on a planet in a universe that is not an accident. It's an opportunity for us in the human form of life, and we should take it. What do you think the future is going to be? Uh, with all your research you've done in the past I mean, and the cover-ups uh, of the past, what, what do you think our future is going to be? Uh, that depends on each individual. The, the universe goes in cycles. Time is cyclical, and during the different cycles, conditions are different. According to the ancient Sanskrit writings of India, there are cycles called yugas. You know, just like in uh, a year, we go through spring, summer, 
fall, winter, and in the different seasons, there are different conditions. We eat different foods, we dress in different ways, different sports are going on, and you know, so we adapt. So similarly, there's a cycle of ages that ancient people understood, you know, kind of a golden age, and then in the next three ages, things get progressively worse. According to the Vedic cosmological calendar, we're in one of the we're in the fourth age, which is the the lowest one. It's pretty bad now, and it's going to get worse. But just because it's going to rain, it doesn't mean you have to get wet. You know, you can shelter yourself, you can shelter other people. So, generally, I would say the trend is towards ever-increasing social disturbance and environmental destruction. That's going to continue. But people can get together individually with their friends, with others, and take a different direction. But do you think that could happen? I mean, the problem is... With this virus going on right now, for example, people can't even really work together. I mean, even if you go, want to go a step farther, look at this election that it, it took place and all the bickering and the fighting and the hating, the Congress, the Senate, nobody can seem to work together anymore. And that's what scares me. Are we, are we ending our cycle where we're getting ready to reboot again? Because we can't go on this way much longer. Yeah, the uh, school of thought I follow, which comes from my connection with a system of yoga and meditation that comes out of India, the, the vision that the great sages had was that this current age we're in, called the Kali Yuga, it began about 5,000 years ago. And as I said, it's a time where things just get worse and worse and worse. They predict governments will become very oppressive, tax their people, people will go to the forest and just to get away from all the oppression and that's going on. But it said that for a period of 10,000 years, it'll be like kind of like Indian summer. You know, like when, when winter's coming on, sometimes you get a few warm days before it gets really icy cold. So I think we're in a period like that right now where the general trend is downward. And... But there's this opportunity at the present moment, you know, for the next few thousand years for those who are intelligent enough and can see what's happening to try to do something to, like I said, shelter themselves, shelter others as many as they can. And after that, then it just goes completely downhill. There's warfare among the humans health conditions get worse and worse lifespan decreases uh, governments become more oppressive 
there's more earthquakes, more tsunamis, more weather, climate disturbances, storms, and things like that. And then finally, when it, you get to the very end of that, then another golden age will start. And it said there are even at this moment, there are people living in psychic refuges in the Himalayan mountains who are waiting for the end of this Kali Yuga. And when the time comes for the next golden age to start, they'll emerge from those refuges and they'll kick off the new golden age. So that's a little bit of prophecy. Interesting. Now, you wrote a book. How can they find this book? Um, best place is my website, mcremo.com, m-c-r-e-m-o.com. There they can find uh, all of my books, Forbidden Archaeology, which deals with the archaeological evidence for extreme human antiquity, human devolution, which deals with an alternative theory of human origins that involves a lot of the paranormal sorts of topics like out-of-body experiences and psychokinesis, telepathy, remote viewing, and things like that. So... And then it's my latest book, My Science, My Religion, which we've got a special offer on. Uh, people can get a free copy of the Bhagavad Gita, which is one of the famous texts of ancient India. If they get a copy of that book uh, from my website. So that's a good place to start. Okay. Well, I want to thank you for coming on. You need to check out his website. Do you have other things besides, you know, books up there? Do you have general information also? Yeah, general information. I would have had this interview there, you know, for people to tune in. Yeah, so it's got a schedule. I mean, because of COVID and everything, we're not going around giving public lectures and going to conferences and meetings like that. But any interviews that I'm going to be giving and stuff like that, they'll be listed there. And there's some forbidden archaeology evidence there. And I'm also on Twitter and Facebook. Great. Well, I want to thank you for coming on. And, uh, you know, it's going to get, you know, after the show here tonight, I'm going to go to bed shortly. And you know what I'm going to be thinking about? The, the origins of mankind. I just, everything I've learned, you know, I came from a religious family. Uh, my grandparents were Mennonite and their beliefs and, and everything I learned as a child. I honestly, I, I don't believe any of it anymore. I, I really don't. Mm-hmm. And I just think that. Like I said, I think we've been rebooted more than once or twice because I've seen so many different pictures of things that I know that have not been altered. That tells me that man has been here a lot longer than what any of the books tell us. The textbooks are wrong. I couldn't agree with you more. Okay, sir. I want you to have a great Christmas. Well, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Okay, sir. Thank you so much for coming on. Okay, Gary. Thank you. And thank you. Well, uh, what can I say? 
I mean, I want all you guys to be out there, you know, to be safe. This virus is actually getting worse. And before uh, we get these vaccines, which they're talking about maybe in the next couple of weeks, but the first group of people that are going to get the vaccine are going to be health care workers. It's scary how many people are getting the virus and how many people have died. If you take all the people that died in World War II, this virus has almost killed that many people. It's getting very close. Of all the, the people who died during World War II, this virus has almost killed that many people. And yet, and yet, there's all this bickering going on with the Congress, the Senate. Like I said that last night on the show, and I'm not going to get too political here, but I'm really worried what's going to happen to all these people that are dependent on extended unemployment when end of December comes and they don't have no no money. And it's a slap in the face to think that the Senate and certain other people think that, well, gee, like Muncie, for example, we can buy the people off by sending them a one more time payment of six hundred dollars, six hundred to me, six hundred to my wife and six hundred per kid or whatever they're going to come up with. Is that going to keep people from losing their houses? Is that going to keep people in rentals, apartments that already haven't paid for months and months and months? How about the poor guy who owns a couple rental houses and has tenants in it? He can't sell it. Well, I guess he could if he can find a buyer with tenants in it. But he's still having to make his mortgage payments or he loses his property. It's not right. And the head of the Federal Reserve has come out and said it's better to overspend in this economy to keep the economy from collapsing than it is to under. And let's be honest with each other. All these numbers in the Federal Reserve are just computer numbers. When they talk about this money, it's nothing there to back it up. Fort Knox don't have billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars in gold. That's all gone. Never had that much. So, I mean, if they sit there and they we go more negative, what difference does it make if it saves the economy? I'm really worried about not going into a deep recession. I am worried about a depression. And I've talked, you know, when I was young, I remember talking to my grandfather and grandmother uh, that went through the Depression and getting kicked out of their house because their father and mother couldn't even support them to keep them in the house. They couldn't put food on. So they just basically, when they were like 13, 14 years old, there's the door. Are we going to come to something like that again? Because one day this economy is going to collapse. And the even in my state, we are at 10.5% unemployment and it's growing. And people that have skilled jobs, 
are they they're having even a hard time to be honest with you flipping burgers they the state of washington i don't know your state out there but the job search where you had to go and and prove that you were looking for a job has been suspended because there is no jobs i really thought that the congress and the senate could have pulled something off this week but the way it looks like it's not going to happen by the end of December. And I'm really worried about you, the listener. What are you going to do if you're one of the poor people? And I'm not talking poor, poor, but one of the poor people that haven't been able to pay your rent. And all of a sudden that's lifted. And come January, your landlord could evict you. Where are you going to go? I mean, this government which I'm proud to be American, but I'm ashamed of what's going on between the Congress and the Senate. They need to get their act together now and stop this bickering between Republican and Democrats and, and think about all the people that they represent that are starving and the health care that people are not getting right now. I don't know. Anyway, we'll catch you on Monday. We're going to be talking again next week about UFOs, ETs, Bigfoot, and all kinds of interesting things. Do me a favor. Go to our website. Check out our store. If there's a mug you want to get something for your, uh, a friend or acquaintance that's a night dreamer, hey, get it now. Because you'll if you order it now, you'll get it by Christmas. Well, till Monday, everybody have a good one. We will talk to you later. You and I Living in the strangest of times On my